Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. The American poet Carl Shapiro has a poem entitled Essay on Rhyme, in which he says this, And who will parse the broken measure of the wasteland, our world-weary masterpiece, in which the very metric tells the tale? Who will devise the necessary scale to read this rhyme as Milton's has been read? Sort of lays down the challenge for us. And it also alludes to something I want to speak about for a minute, and that is that this poem is just beginning to be absorbed into the cultural bloodstream. Uh, It takes a while for certain pieces of literature uh, to sink in. What we're doing here today, sitting around talking about the wasteland, trying to come to grips with it, people will be doing 500 years from now. So we have, we have a connection with those to come, because this poem is going to demand a scrutiny from future generations. If there's anybody in America who's prepared to understand the wasteland when it, when it first came out, Alan Tate was the person. Uh, his, he was completely familiar with Dante and with the literary tradition out of which uh, Eliot was dealing. And uh, he was sympathetic, I, I, would, I think, with the overall sensibility of Eliot. But still, no, when it first came out, Alan Tate read it, he said, two things hit me immediately. First is, I didn't understand a word of it. And the second is, I knew beyond a doubt it was a great poem. When it first came out, it came out in a magazine. It was later picked up by a publishing house. And when they went to press and they typeset it and laid it out, they found out that the uh, bookmaking requires that things be broken down into, uh, depending on the size of the page, but usually broken down into, into sets of eight pages. And they found out that when they did that, there were several pages left over kind of awkwardly at the end of the book, a lot of blank pages. So the publisher said to Eliot, uh, do you have another poem, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Would you, some way, we've got these extra pages. And Eliot said, well, I don't know should be published by itself, but so the publisher said, well, how about once you write some notes to it? It is kind of complicated. And so Elliot obliged and wrote the notes to, to the Wasteland, the famous notes to the Wasteland, uh, which are only there because of the exigencies of the publishing business. And uh, Elliot himself later on uh, regretted having, as he said, led so many people on a wild goose chase after the tarot cards and the Holy Gra- and the Grail legend. So, he's, so uh, he says that people spend a lot more time with the notes than they do with the poem. And the poem is the thing. The notes are, uh, sometimes they, uh, they take us, like he says, on a wild goose chase. Recently reading a um, philosophical history by uh, Eric Coller, and, and in it uh, he talked about a transition ha- that happened in the mid to the late 19th century in European culture, which is that the economic and technical developments changed the language of the day into the idiom of what he called modern civilization. And it created, quote, an irreconcilable contradiction between the language of daily life and that of poetry. And then Collar goes on to say that certain poets at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th began to try to overcome that incapacity. And uh, he lists a number of them uh, across the European spectrum. He lists T.S. Eliot uh, prominently. And he says of these New, po- new poetic endeavors, he says, in its cryptic terseness and concentration, this type of poetry is accessible only to those few who can reproduce the process of poetic creation within themselves. 
the fact that this poem is only accessible to a few is a symptom of the cultural problem that the poem addresses. One commentator, Archie Collingwood, wrote this, to readers who want not amusement or magic, but poetry, and who want to know what poetry can be if it is to be neither of these things. The wasteland supplies an answer. And by reflecting on it, we can perhaps detect one more characteristic which art must have if it is to forego both entertainment value and magical value and draw a subject matter from its audience themselves. It must be prophetic. An artist must prophesy, not in the sense that he foretells things to come, but in the sense that he tells his audience, at risk of their displeasure, the secrets of their own hearts. And in that sense, this poem is prophetic. I, I think of it uh, as a kind of Mars probe, uh, which, uh, when it first begins to send back its little, uh, its little uh, images and so on, uh, they haven't, they aren't quite uh, available, and we have to have, uh, we have to wait on further analysis and further study uh, before we can draw conclusions about whether there is or is not life here. And here we are living several decades after the poem came into existence. Think of it this way. The older Eliot, the elder Eliot, would have understood his poem better than the man who wrote it. It's possible to understand a poem better than the author at the moment the author is writing it. That is to say, a prophetic writer has the genius for applying to the situation the exactly appropriate symbolic image. The details of how appropriate that image is may not emerge for some time after it has been fleshed out in the, in the cultural life and in the experience of uh, later readers. So we come to the poem not so much concerned about exactly what Eliot meant, although we will have to assume that he meant everything we can imagine it meaning. Uh, but we're not restricted to that. What we really want to find out about is what this poem tells us about the mystery of life and death. The Wasteland and Joyce's Ulysses came out about the same time. And in commenting on Ulysses, here's what Eliot said, and it's also true of his own poetry. He said, in using the myth, the myth of Ulysses, in manipulating a continuous parallel between contemporaneity and antiquity, Mr. Joyce is pursuing a method which others must pursue after him. Now, the question is, he's using myth. In what way is he using myth? Now, we're talking about Eliot's use of myth. Eliot goes on to talk about Joyce. It is simply a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving a shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy which is contemporary history. In other words, contemporary history did not provide uh, its own scaffolding for the understanding of itself. And so Joyce and Eliot superimpose a, 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 a set of associations taken from antiquity and make the, the distinction between antiquity and what Eliot calls contemporaneity invisible. We've been using a lot of anthropological things with René Girard and others uh, on the question of ritual. I spoke earlier, uh, late last year, about the fact that we're shifting our attention from myth to ritual. Well, that's exactly what uh, 
Eliot is doing. Here's what Pierce says. Eliot is still the poet as philosophical anthropologist. The poems of the participative ritual were yet to come, that is to say, the four quartets. The wasteland made their coming inevitable. Interpreting the history of culture as a history of ritual forms, it postulated the existence of that single transcendent ritual in which alone the person would discover the power whereby he might move and act and be. The wasteland is a study in rituals, mythologized rituals. It's a study in the ritual attempt to achieve rebirth or regeneration, all of which fail. And while this remythologizing ritual option is being presented in many different forms, there's another voice going through the poem, which is the voice of the Hebrew prophet. And that is the voice which says, none of that will do. None of that will lead to real regeneration. The first thing that must happen, as the first section of this poem indicates, is that we must bury the dead, is that we must look at reality in the face. We must come to understand what is. We must face the wasteland and not evade it. So... Those are the two voices I think are going on in the, in, in the poem. And they're each, each is multiple, but it, the two s kinds of voices are the voices of the, the, voices of the uh, re-mythologizing rituals and the voices of the genuine prophets that calls all of that into question and demands that we look at what really is. Now, I brought two poems uh, as uh, indicative and of these two um, approaches. And I mean to cast no aspersions on either one of the poets or praise the other one over uh, much, but here they are. They, they come from um, Kathleen Rain and Louis McNeese. They both, uh, these are contemporaries. And the first is Kathleen Rain's. It's called The Pythoness. I read it because it is the voice of the, of the remythologizing imagination, the remythologizing ritual. Here it is. I am that serpent's haunted cave whose navel breeds the fates of men. All wisdom issues from a hole in the earth. The gods form in my darkness and dissolve again. From my blind womb all kingdoms come, and from my grave seven sleepers prophesy. No babe unborn but wakens to my dream. No lover but at last entombed in me shall lie. I am that feared and longed for burning place where man and phoenix are consumed away. And from my low polluted bed arise new suns, new suns, new skies. S-O-N-S-S-U-N-S. -S -S. New suns, new suns, new skies. It's very appealing in a kind of way. It's very mysterious. It's offering this great dark mystery. Come into this dark mystery and you will find out about rebirth. Now that's the, vo the voice of the remythologizing ritual. The voice of the prophet is something more like Louis McNeese's. This is called Obod, which uh, is a, a morning song. It's uh, sometimes the matin song. The Obod is the praise to the rising sun kind of joyful morning song. This is the real morning song. Having bitten on life like a sharp apple, or playing it like a fish, been happy. Having felt with fingers that the sky is blue, 
what have we after that to look forward to? Not the twilight of the gods, but a precise dawn of sallow and gray bricks and newsboys crying war. Now, if I may use these two poems to indicate two approaches to transformation. One is uh, the mythologized ritual, and to turn to that, and to do or steep in that kind of the promise that it offers. And the other is the prophetic voice, which says, the first thing is that you must awaken to what is. But before we can appreciate the first opening lines, everybody knows the opening lines, but we have to understand uh, the, 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 the contrast that he's setting in motion here. Here's the way the prologue to the Canterbury Tales begins. I won't subject you to my version of the Old English. Uh, this is the modern translation of it. When April, with his sweet showers, has pierced the drought of March to the root and bathed every vein in such moisture as has the power to bring forth flower, etc., etc. April showers bring May flowers. It's that simple. April is the month when suddenly the showers come and the roots stir, and new life begins. And then, but that's not what Chaucer's after. Chaucer's after something else. A few lines later it says, when all that happens, he describes in some detail the, the re coming to life of the earth, and then he says, then it is that people long to go on pilgrimages, and palmers long to seek strange shores and far-off shrines known in various lands, and especially from the ends of every shire in England they come to Canterbury to seek the holy, blissful martyr who helped them when they were sick. See, that's what April does, is it creates uh, the environment in which one begins to feel a longing to go on that religious pilgrimage and to end up at Canterbury, which is where the holy martyr Thomas Beckett died. And uh, Eliot, unbeknownst to himself, is headed for Canterbury. He doesn't know that when he's riding the wasteland, but he knows that he's writing it with this as a backdrop. It turns out he's headed directly for Canterbury. His whole life is a pilgrimage. He gets to Canterbury, and by golly, when he gets there, he writes Murder in the Cathedral, which is a celebration of the martyr who saved us when we were sick. It's just a fabulous uh, self-prophecy in a way. But it's not that kind of April that Eliot is describing in his poem. It's an April that does something entirely different. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Now, notice that the first three lines uh, end in these Participles, breeding, mixing, stirring, all sort of mechanical. Uh, breeding is not exactly the, the word you would want to use for something more wholesome. It's kind of clinical. And I want to just suggest that whether intentionally or not is another question, but these first lines echo, as so much of Ellie's poems do, earlier works. And they echo specifically, I think, Portrait of a Lady, Prufrock, and Geronchen. Now, we didn't do Portrait of a Lady here, 
Uh, perhaps we should have, but we didn't take the time to do it. But I'd like to bring a few of the passages in today because they are relevant. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Now, lilacs have an association in Eliot's uh, work, uh, more, uh, more detailed than we'll get into here, but here is an association from Portrait of a Lady. Portrait of a Lady is a story, is a poem about an older woman and a younger man facing the possibility of an erotic entanglement and the awkwardness of the situation, and it not quite, as in so many of that, as in Gerontian and Prufrock and so many in Sweeney, it doesn't quite come off. And here's, what, here's the passage about uh, that's relevant to this. Now that lilacs are in bloom, now lilacs, by the way, are the possibility of new love. Now that lilacs are in bloom, she has a bowl of lilacs in her room and twist one in her fingers while she talks. And this, this is a quote from her talk. Ah, my friend, you do not know, you do not know what life is. You who hold it in your hand, parentheses, slowly twisting the lilac stalk. Now, any commentary on that is unworthy of it, um, but I can't, I, ha I can't resist. She, has, she plucks the lilacs as soon as they're in bloom to bring them in and have them. See? Lilacs are the possibility of new love, new life through new love. Now that the lilacs are in bloom, she has a bowl of lilacs in her room and twists one in her fingers while she talks. That kind of unconsciously twisting the way you, you twist a napkin, you know, it's kind of unconsciously in a, in a stressful situation, the possibility of new love being there in the presence of the potential lover, and there is the moment where the lilacs are being twisted out of the need for them, the very need for them, the very longing for them is causing them to be twisted. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow feeding a little life with dried tubers. Now, see, winter is welcome. Spring is not welcome. Winter is welcome because it didn't ask much. It didn't, it wasn't provocative. It wasn't stirring. It wasn't upsetting. It covered us with forgetful snow. Now we begin the survey of that, a little survey of that. And this is a, this poem is like a shortwave radio with a great high antenna at which you begin to turn the dial and you begin to pick up little snatches of things all over Europe. Just little moments. Just you break into the, in the middle of something and you catch something. And then you turn the dial and you're someplace else and you catch something else. But it, it's even more than that because it begins then to pick up things sort of in the Rod Serling way, things that go uh, in a temporal spectrum as well. So it begins to pick up things that are timeless and things that are ancient. And then it, begin and it picks up things in different languages, picks them up in English and French and German and Italian. And then it picks them up in Latin and Greek and Sanskrit. And it's putting them all together the way a cinematographer would put cut scenes together and the, and the way they're placed is part of, the, is, is part of what generates the meaning of, of a poem. So we've just been told that uh, April 
mixes memory and desire. So we get this voice. This should be done with a German accent. I, I'm not going to be able to pull that off, but uh, you should just know that <clears throat> this is, Elliot probably got his, uh, this image from a, uh, a memoir by a, a, a remnant of the older European aristocracy. It goes like this. Summer surprised us, coming over the Stanbergersee with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Bin gar keine Russen, stamos Litauen ek Deutsch. I am not Russian. I come from Lithuania, pure German. So summer surprised us, and we dealt with it by getting in out of the rain and waiting a while and then going to the cafe, sitting down and drinking coffee and talking. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousin's, he took me out on a sled, and I was frightened. He said, Marie, Marie, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. End of vignette. This is someone living on the spiritual resources, the material and spiritual resources of a bygone past and having the wherewithal to evade what one wants to evade, getting in out of the rain if you need to, going south for the winter if you need to, being able to avoid what one wants to avoid. And here the Countess remembers a, a, uh, a winter day at the Archduke's in the mountains. And uh, it was a moment when she was alive. She was frightened and exhilarated, and they were going down the hill on the sled. And he said to her, Marie, Marie, hold on tight. And down we went, down from childhood, down from the snowy mountain, down into life, with this one piece of instruction ringing in her ears, Marie, Marie, hold on tight, hold on tight. And down we went. And then we come back into the present moment. In the mountains, there you feel free. Not there you are free, but there you feel free. And that's because the mountains are like the Archdukes, my cousins, when I was a child. One can now go to the mountains in the hope of recapturing that moment of exhilaration when all really is that's left of it is the, is the voice of instruction which said to her, hold on tight. Uh, maintain your poise by holding on tight. And so she holds on tight, and this, she says, I read much of the night and go south for the winter. Now, where can you get, of course, it requires all the lines that go before it, but where can you get a line that conveys with that kind of subtlety 
the utter desperation of the situation. Very subtle, very subtle. But what, what a delivery system Eliot has constructed here for, the, for that feeling. I read much of the night and go south for the winter. But none of it is confronting life. And so the prophetic voice now comes in with both feet. What are the roots that clutch what branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. He says you can't even begin to appraise your situation because the the imaginative wherewithal for understanding your own condition is not even accessible to you anymore. You cannot even say or guess because you don't have the cultural resources for analyzing the situation that you are caught up in. But notice, it is intentionally prophetic in the Hebrew sense, the Old Testament Hebrew sense. Son of man is a phrase out of Ezekiel. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. Where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you, I will show you fear and a handful of dust. So this is a different kind of a shadow. The only thing that offers hope in this wasteland, notice this, the heap of broken images offers no hope. The dead tree gives no shelter. The cricket, no relief. The dry stone, no sound of water. There is... There is no hope in this wasteland. The only hope is the shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock. This is a different kind of the shadow. This is not the kind of a shadow that one has in one, one's youth. Your shadow at morning striding behind you. Or the shadow of death at one, in one's old age. Your shadow at evening rising to meet you. Notice, by the way, both of those shadows uh, depict someone who is facing, if not bowing, to the east. I'll show you something different from those kind of shadows. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Now, dust, of course, is an image of mortality, but I think it's the opposite here in a way. Because the, symbol, the Sibyl of Kumi had said to Apollo, I'd like to have a year of life for every grain of dirt in my hand. And that's what she got. And I think when he says a fear in a handful of dust, what he's talking about, the handful of dust is life. And fear is the fear of life. Not the fear of the standard anxieties of youth, nor even the dread of one's mortality in old age. It's not those fears. It's purely and simply the fear of life.
And so the question the poem deals with is what that fear, the kind of recoiling that that fear inspires in us. Frisch wird der Wind der Heimat zu, mein irisch Kind, wo weilest du? From Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, Act One. English translation, fresh blows the wind toward our homeland. My Irish child, where are you lingering? And it's sung by a sailor in Act One as uh, Tristan is bringing Isolde back in the ship from Ireland to Cornwall to marry King Mark. And this is before the plot really develops. And the plot, of course, is the triangle between Tristan and Mark and Isolde. Uh, and Tristan and Isolde is, the, is the, the archetypal rendition of passionate romance. That is to say, the romance that requires the triangle in order to, uh, to leverage into existence the, the passion that it thrives on. It is the mimetic triangle, the mimetic desire. The hope is that romance will overcome the wasteland. Now, what overcomes the wasteland, of course, is love. But this is the hope of romance. This has the triangular quality to it. It has all of the energy that's available in the triangle. And then we have, the next is a, is a woman speaking. You gave me high, which we're now turning the, the dial on the shortwave radio. You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Perhaps I should do this. The hyacinth is a... Um, hyac hyacinthus was a beloved... This is homoerotic uh, classical stuff. It be the beloved of, of Apollo, but also the beloved of Zephyrus, the wind... And at a, a day when they were throwing the discus, Apollo throws the discus, and Zephyrus the wind causes the discus to rebound, and it comes back and hits a hyacinthus in the head and kills him. And from his blood grows the hyacinth. So the hyacinth is a flower that has to do with the triangle, the romantic triangle, and the fact that it, it requires the death of the beloved. The story of Tristan and Isolde begins with the words, Lords and ladies, let me tell you the story of love and death. So the hyacinth is also an, an image of that tri the kind of energy that the, that the love triangle provides, the passionate love energy provided by the triangle, which is one of the most powerful of the remythologizing rituals that relieves us of the sense of the wasteland. It's a way to get out of the wasteland for a moment. You gave me hyacinths a year ago. So if you gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. And now he's speaking. Yet, when we came back late from the hyacinth garden, now, I would like to say this. The word late in the middle of that line has never been used with as much 
profundity. It's bracketed by the commas. But we have to understand that they came back from the Hyacinth Garden late. And all that tells us about what happens in the Hyacinth Garden. Yet, when we came back late from the Hyacinth Garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak. My eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing. Looking into the heart of light was silent. This is the failure of love. This is the morning after. This is when you come back from the Hyacinth Garden late with your hair wet and your arms full. And here, the man has this blank look in his face and knows nothing, looks into the heart of light, the silent. We'll get more of this later on. This poem keeps coming back to itself. More of this later on. Speak to me, she says. It's very important, this scene, because this has played a profoundly important role in our time. So this little section began with that hopeful song from the beginning of Tristan and Isolde and it ends with one brief phrase out of the end of Tristan and Isolde. Ud und leerd das Meer bleak and empty sea. And that's when Tristan's lying dying waiting for Isolde to come over the sea to cure him. And they're looking out over the sea to see the sail, and they see no sail. Bleak and empty sea. And this is the poem's commentary on that option out of the fact of the wasteland. Uh, there's a hyacinth reference in Portrait of a Lady I'd like to go back to. Uh, I quoted earlier from the woman speaking and twisting the lilac in her hand. And this is now the man speaking, and he is like the man in, in here in this section of the wasteland. He is evasive, unresponsive, and here's what he says. You will see me any morning in the park reading the comics and the sporting page. Particularly, I remark, an English countess goes upon the stage. A Greek was murdered at a Polish dance. Another bank defaulter has confessed. I keep my countenance. I remain self-possessed, except when a street piano, mechanical and tired, reiterates some worn-out common song with the smell of hyacinths across the garden, recalling things that other people have desired. That little moment when suddenly, in the confluence of a piece of music and the smell of the hyacinth, there is that awakening, and notice it's what other people have desired, tells us it begins to stir in that direction. Uh, so the hyacinth represents that option. One says, hey, this isn't a desert, because right over here there's a hyacinth garden. But it's only a hyacinth garden if it causes a genuine, rebirth, and if it's an escape from life, 
fear of the handful of dust. You see, it's an escape. Then where does it go? Nowhere. I have a couple of passages from Rene Girard this morning. This is the first of them. This is, uh, I think, one of the truly most insightful things in his writing. Desire is always using for its own ends the knowledge it has acquired of itself. It places the truth in the service of its own untruths, so to speak. It always does its best at both the individual and collective levels to generate the double binds in which it gets caught, seeking always to entrap itself in the cul-de-sac that is its very raison d'etre, its very reason for being. The idea of a demon who bears light is more far-reaching than any notion in psychoanalysis. Desire bears light, but puts that light into the service of its own darkness. There's the moment when you come back late from the hyacinth garden and suddenly there's no communication. And there's this blank stare. And now we get the voice of myth. This is a del delicious section here. Madame Sosostras, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold. Remember Madame de Turnquist in the Gerontian poem? Uh, this is the pseudo-religion. Uh, this, uh, this is a piece of pseudo-religion uh, offered up for the recreational uses of the social set. Madame Sosostras, famous clairvoyant, had a bad cold, nevertheless is known to be the wisest woman in Europe with a wicked pack of cards. And notice the, the multiple meanings here. Uh, one could, th you think of a phrase, wicked pack of lies. Then wicked would mean wicked. Or one could say the w one has a wicked backhand. And then wicked means good, clever, insightful. Or, uh, and then here it's with a wicked pack of cards. And so we get both meanings. Here, said she, is your card. Now, your means yours and mine. Uh, but let's remember that the last person we heard from in this poem was the man for whom the hyacinth garden had ceased to work. I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead and I knew nothing, looking into the heart of light, the silence. Here, said she, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Look. You know, pearls are wonderfully precious things. And so one, a, a love song, well, wouldn't quite call a lover's eyes pearls, but uh, lips as red as a rose or whatever. To, to have pearls for eyes is a wonderful thing. Uh, except that they don't see. They look into the heart of light, the silent, with a blank stare. So one of the cards, your card, is the drowned Phoenician sailor who is looking out of these blind pearl eyes. But let's go on. Here is Belladonna, the lady of the rocks, the lady of situation. 
hard to imagine that, I mean, I, there's certain words, I've been going over this poem untold numbers of times, and I marvel at the word situations. It's, it's such an awkward, latinate word there, but it's just perfect. Belladonna, the lady of situations. Belladonna means the beautiful lady, but it's also the plant that is poisonous, concoctions from which are used both for sedation and stimulation. And she's the lady of situations. Shall I return for a moment to Girard? It always does its best, that is desire, always does its best to generate the double binds in which it gets caught, seeking always to entrap itself in the cul-de-sac that is its very raison d'etre. The lady of situations. Here is the man with three staves, and Eliot associates that with the wounded fisher king. And here, the wheel. And in the tarot deck, it's the wheel of fortune, but it, the implication is that which goes round and round and round and round, just keeps going, repetitive. And here is the one-eyed merchant. So these are the these are the pieces in the cultural puzzle. The drowned Phoenician sailor, Belladonna, the lady of situations, the fisher king, the man with three staves, and the wheel, going round and round and round. And then the one-eyed merchant. We get a picture of him in a few minutes. And this card, which is blank, is something he carries on his back which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water, I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. Now this is so densely packed. But notice she says, uh, the one-eyed merchant carries something on his back which I cannot see. Well, let it be known, Eliot could see it, and he documents it later on. Uh, but she is forbidden to see it. And the next thing she says is, I do not find the hanged man. The hanged man is the crucified one. Uh, I do not find the hanged man. And that's associated with what the one-eyed merchant may be carrying on his back, which she is unable to see. And the next thing she says is fear death by water. Death by water is baptism. Fear death by water. So uh, she's exposing, in a way, what is, what the, the cultural repertoire is offering, except she's got a blind spot. She cannot see the burden that the one-eyed merchant is carrying on his back. And she cannot find the crucified one. And that's Madame Sosostris. Her name sort of means Madame Soso. That's Madame Sosostris's blind spot. She cannot recognize what the one-eyed man is, the one-eyed merchant is carrying on his shoulders, and she cannot find the crucified one. And she knows this, fear death by water. And what she sees is crowds of people walking in a ring. She does not understand it because 
Elliot will understand it for her in just a minute, which is that that's hell. Thank you. And the reason she says thank you is because she's just been paid. It's a wonderful thank you. The point is that she has a blind spot and is offering a reprieve from the wasteland which promises a rejuvenation it's not able to deliver on because cannot face the truth of the situation, cannot see what the one-eyed merchant might be carrying on his back, nor can it find the crucified one. She says, you're paying me for this. Uh, Let's uh, present these. Now, there is something I can't see, and that is uh, the crosses that may come. See? Now, the inability to see what the one-eyed merchant's carrying on his back and the inability to find the hanged man or the crucified one and the, and the intuition that we must fear death by water all relate, in my mind, to one blind spot, which is you don't go in that direction. We don't know about that. In other words, there is an unconscious... Uh, Girard makes this point. There's an unconscious aversion on the part of myth to gospel. It feels, it senses that the gospel uh, bears in it the seeds of the destruction of myth. And so there is an, there's an instinctive unconscious aversion to any of the gospel thing. So whatever this strange thing, this one-eyed merchant's carrying on his back, I can't see it. And, what he's, and, and I can't find the hanged man, the crucified one. I know this much. You must fear death by water. And to me, it's all of a piece. It's, it's aversion to that. But thank you. If you see dear Mrs. Equitone, as always, the names in Elliot are fun, Mrs. One note, Mrs. Neutrality, Mrs. Monotone. If you see dear Mrs. Equitone, tell her I bring the horoscope myself. One must be so careful these days. Now, this is like great Greek tragedy where the, where the person on the stage speaks a line that uh, he's oblivious, has absolute relevance to his own condition. But Madame Sosostris is, is presuming that she is uh, the guardian of the great truths. I will have to bring the horoscope myself because uh, uh, one must be careful the, these days, you see, these days. And so we can read that as her voice and then we can read it as Eliot's voice, these days. Uh, Madame Sosostris does not know what, how much a product of these days she is. But Elliot is about to tell us, at any rate, unreal city. Now that, you see, here comes, again, powerful prophetic voice. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge so many I had not thought death had undone so many. And that's from Canto Three, the Inferno. So what Elliot is saying is that this is hell. This is hell. It's the morning commuter rush over the London Bridge from the south of London where the suburbs are into the financial district 
and its hell. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet. Flow up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. Now, this is the London Financial District. King William Street is lined with insurance offices and banks. St. Mary Woolmus is a, on a prominent corner of King William Street, directly across from Lloyd's Bank, where T.S. Eliot worked from 1917 to 1925. So he's describing a scene he knew very, very well. Most profoundly of all, however, I think, is the positioning of St. Mary Woolnoth in the poem and in the downtown London. The church has become a timekeeping accomplice to the commercialization of Western civilization. The church provides the bell that starts the day. It says, to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of, you want to read doom, you see, on the final stroke of 9 a.m. It's the beginning of the business day. But it's described in very doom-like terms. And the church bell rings and the bank doors open. So the church has accommodated itself to the very world that it ought to be taking a prophetic stand with regard to. There I saw one I knew and stopped him crying, Stetson! Now this, this is Dante, so Dante-esque, you see. Dante's always seeing people in hell or purgatory that he knows. Stetson! And what a choice of words, of names. It's, it's quintessentially American. It's the one with the prominent hat. It's the one who's standing tall and wearing that big hat, you see. It's like that. But I think there's also another element in it. Eliot was familiar with uh, publishing and proofreading and all of that. And there is a thing called a step in proofreading. And it comes from the word... the the Latin verb to stand, it means to let stand, so that if you have made that little mark in proofreading, which means eliminate, a little curlicue, which means to take it out, you go back on second reading and you decide not to take it out. You, you make a, a step mark, which the dictionary says it means, quote, to nullify a previous order to delete or omit. So the stepson uh, is the son of, a, of one marked for, uh, for uh, extinction, but who's been allowed to remain in the text, so to speak. Do you, do you get that implication there? So he sees Stetson, you see. So he's going to be around for a while longer, but he's already, we've already got a little marker of elimination on him, but for the time being, he's being uh, allowed to survive. Stetson. You who were with me in the ships at Miley. Miley is a battle in the Punic Wars between Carthage and Rome in which uh, Rome was victorious and which therefore resulted in the drowning of a lot of Phoenician sailors. 
That corpse, he's speaking to Stetson, that corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? Or has the sudden frost disturbed its bed? And again, we're talking about the, the ritual regeneration, which always relies on the corpse. Now, myth cannot look at that corpse. That's why Madame Sesostris cannot find the hanged man, because she cannot afford to look at the crucified one, because the crucified one will make that corpse too visible. And uh, the jig is up. We're always planting corpses in the gardens. That's how the gardens come to be. So he has one piece of warning. Oh, keep the dog far hence that's friend to men, or with his nails he'll dig it up again. Now, Eliot got this from John Webster's, a John Webster play, Elizabethan dramatist play. But in Webster it was, keep the wolf far thence, who is the foe to men. So here we have an attempt to avoid the wasteland, which is the creation of a garden in the middle of which is a corpse. That's the quintessential way of avoiding the wasteland. But the, but the warning is to keep the dog far hence that's friend to men or with his nails he'll dig it up again. The word dog is capitalized and the word dog is the word God written backwards. And what we know about this particular God is that he is friend to men. And with his nails, he'll dig it up again. You see that? It's the crucifixion. Beware of the crucified one, because he will expose that corpse and your little project will be over. You, hypocrite lecture, mon semblant, mon frere, you, hypocrite reader, my equal, my fellow man, my, my similar one, my twin, my double, my brother. That's the end of that section. And it's, a, it's a quotation from Baudelaire. But notice the development. Hypocrite reader, my fellow man, my brother. Now that's what the prophetic voice does. The prophetic voice starts by slapping you right in the face. And it says, hypocrite. And then it says, we're in the same boat. And then it says, we are brothers and sisters. And the, so the prophetic has the capacity to arrive at a genuine community. Here's what Eliot said in an essay on Baudelaire. The recognition of the reality of sin is a new life. And the possibility of damnation is so immense a relief in a world of electoral reform, plebiscite, sex reform, and dress reform that damnation itself is an immediate form of salvation, of salvation from the ennui of modern life because it at last gives some significance to live. 